I kind of feel like I need to take credit for something. Father's Day didn't get adopted until 1972, which is the year I was born. So in a way, I feel like I've blessed you all, fathers out there of all kinds. You're welcome. I think part of it was, you know, they saw me come on the scene like, dads are going to need some serious help. We need to celebrate them because this kid has just been born. Anyway, happy Father's Day of all, all, all makes and models out there, stepdads, granddads, all of that. The first book that I remember reading as a kid was profound because it was a book that actually didn't have a lot of pictures in it. So as a kid, I felt, I felt like I'd accomplished something, you know, because most of what I read at that point were comic books, and that had a lot more pictures in it than words. But I remember reading this book. It was by an author named Walt Morey, and the book was called Gentle Ben. Anybody remember that? I think they made a series of it for a few years. And I remember reading the book. And first of all, I was impressed that I could finish the book with all those words in it. But I learned some things. The story is about a little boy named Ben, which I related to. And he befriended a big brown bear in Alaska. And so there was this friendship that happened. And I remember just being sort of shaped by that book a little bit. I mean, there was things like friendship and loyalty and there was some danger involved and there was courage that was needed. But a lot of it was friendship and even like, you know, being nice to animals. There were some things there that kind of resonated with me. And I still think about that today. It's it's strange to me that a book like that can, can still shape me so many years later. But stories can do that, right? I mean, stories and narratives that we read, they can shape us. In fact, I would like to open that up. I mean, what's a story that has shaped you? I mean, think about that for a moment. Think about a story that maybe is a favorite story of yours, but a story that, that sort of shaped you. Maybe it was as a kid, or maybe it was something you saw on screen, but can you, can you think of a story that sort of shaped you? And if you can think of one, share it with someone around you. If you've got someone around you, just take a minute to a story that shaped you. Go ahead, just, just real quick. A story could be The Hobbit, Chronicles of Narnia, love that. A story that shaped you. Because stories can do that. Whether, again, it's something that we read or we watch on a screen. But there's some other things to our story, right? The things that happened to us as kids or things that we did, choices, good or bad. You know, that, that can be a sordid tale, I realize. But when you look back on your life, those are stories and things that happened to you that shape who you are today. That they, they speak to who you are today. Yes, we can get past difficult things in our past, but these are stories that shape us. They affect how we operate in the world. And today, we're going to be getting into the book of Exodus. And if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, this is a story that's going to shape a nation. This story in Exodus is something that will, 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 will be resonating for millions of people as a nation gets started. But it all starts with this Exodus out of Egypt. And so that's what we're going to be leaning into today. So if you brought a, a printed Bible, start finding the book of Exodus. It's the second one in your Bible, the anthology we call the Bible, 66 books. This is book two. And of course, we were talking about the Torah. This is a, a series that we, we started a few years ago, a few years ago, a few weeks ago. We've been in this a long time. Uh, 
This series we kicked off in, in Torah is, is a Hebrew word. It's a Jewish uh, term for the first five books of the Bible. And, and they call it the law, but it's really different than the way we think of laws. We think of laws as sort of legal codes and that sort of thing. But the Hebrew people looked at law like the guidance of your life. And so this was the guidance of God to the people. So it was very special for them. Now, when Jesus was around in the first century, the first five books of the Bible were actually known as the law of Moses. And certainly that, that helped. that's good because Moses you know, penned a lot of it. And, and in fact, we have law in there. But as we'll find out today, the actual law part of the first five books doesn't show up till about midway through Exodus. So we're 70-some chapters in before we actually get to the law that we would think of as far as like the guidelines there. But our hope is in this series that you will be able to, 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 to understand a little bit more about how these books all relate to Jesus and how these books shape and form us. This is like the history, the backstory of his story. And so the hope is in this series you'll be able to, to make those connections because we really believe around here that the Bible is a cover-to-cover story of God's great love for us through Jesus Christ. And so every book matters. Every book leads to Jesus. So I encourage you to, to, to lean in. In fact, we, we gave a challenge as we started to, to read through uh, kind of bigger chunks, if you will, of Scripture. Uh, too oftentimes I think we take Scripture in little teeny bits but sometimes we need to read a little bit more to get the full story. So I want to encourage you. I realize that there's quite a few chapters, 187 chapters in all five books. Uh, it took me over six hours to get through them. I didn't do it all at once. But I encourage you to take some time and read it. If you've never done that, there's something about reading a bigger chunk that helps you see the patterns, helps you see repetition, and helps really show you, wow, there's a lot about Jesus right here in the pages of Scripture. So I'm Pastor Ben, glad you're here. If this is your first Sunday with us, wow, welcome. It's awesome that you are here, whether that be in person or online. We, we see you. Thank you for being here. We're going we're gonna to lean in today to the book of Exodus and a story that shaped a nation. So let's pause for a word of prayer and get rolling. Father, we come before you. You're mighty and powerful, and you have great things that you want to teach us through story. Father, help us to lean into the story here and see how it's, it's a story that shapes us as well. So, Father, help us to hear from your word, to be challenged, to be changed. And, Father, that you would do your work through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus, we are there. Hopefully you found it. If, uh, if you were here last week, we had a professor from Boise Bible College, my alma mater, was here. And we, we kind of took a 30,000-foot view of Genesis now, Genesis is, is one of those difficult books to get through. It's hard to wade through. He took like a 30,000-foot view of Genesis. And in that, he was talking about how God created everything, and really, God's heart was to bless his people, to bless his creation, to bless. And so that was the heart of what we see in Genesis. And we left off. Do you remember where we left off in Genesis? The, the last chapter of Genesis is Genesis 50. And what happens there is uh, Jacob's family, well, Joseph, uh, his whole family has relocated to Egypt. And there are about 70 or so of them, and they're, they're, they're in Egypt, and there we left Genesis 50. When we flip from Genesis 50 to Exodus chapter 1, we have now advanced some 400 years. Four centuries. That'd be like us back to the pilgrim days or whatever. I don't even know what that would be for us, but that's, that's just gives you an idea of how much time passes from one page 
to the next. And we wind up in Egypt, which is going to set up the story for what's going to happen with Moses and leading the people out of Egypt. So let's, let's lean into uh, to Exodus chapter 1. Let's read a few verses to get us started in, in Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. If you remember that story, right? He was second-hand man to the Pharaoh at the time. Uh, but he brings his whole family down. There's about 70 of them, all his brothers, his dad. And then listen to this. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Dun, dun, dun. Don't you want to hear that, right? All right. Not in Scripture, but I think that's what you mean, right? This sets up this whole thing of, well, this Pharaoh sees all these people. They're multiplying. Now, that whole idea of being fruitful and multiplied, does that sound familiar to you? Didn't, didn't that be, wasn't that told to a, a couple of humans back in Genesis? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Well, they took that to heart. And now this family that started with 70, now we have hundreds of thousands of them. And that puts them on the radar for the Egyptians. And they see these Israelites and thinking, you know what? We could really use some, some people to build some stuff. And so that sets up the, sort of that, 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 that conflict that's going to happen in the book of Exodus. Now, if you've if you got your Bible, so you've got Exodus, right? And you've got 40 chapters. You could almost divide the book in two. So the first 18 chapters, uh, you're, you're going to hear about Moses and he's going to be born, and, and, and the people are enslaved, and there's going to be these plagues, right? How many plagues were there? Ten. And the last one was pretty, it was a doozer. Uh, we'll talk about that. So we got plagues, and then we have kind of a lot going on. It's like a, well, there's been lots of movies created on the first part of Exodus, right? I mean, you have the people, and all these people, and you have the conflict with the Pharaoh, and he's coming after him with chariots, and you got like seas being parted, and you know, God fighting for them, and the people are miraculously saved. There's, there's a lot of going on there. It's like, it'd be a great comic book, is what I'm saying. But that happens in the first part, and then if, you, if, you, if you're paying attention, the, the people will finally kind of get free of Pharaoh and his army, and they wind up in the desert of Sinai at Mount Sinai, or Hebron. Either way, your Bibles might, might have it that way. So, so they end up, after this kind of escape, this big stuff happening, and then they park it at Mount Sinai for quite a while. They're there, and while they're there, and then, now this is the second half of, of, of Exodus, starting with about chapter 19. They're there at the mount, and God starts this covenant with them. 
He gives them the parameters for a covenant. Remember, we talked about in week one, covenant's not like a contract. A covenant has to do with people and sacrifice and being uh, all in, not just a paper signed somewhere. Covenant was God making promises with his people. It was a very special moment. And so the second half of Exodus is uh, God giving them the parameters of this new covenant. And that's the first covenant of the Bible. And Moses is getting this. Now, initially, God was kind of showing up to all the people, and they freaked out. That scared them. So eventually, like, Moses, you go handle that. So they kind of, like, Moses, you go do that, and we'll stay here at the bottom of the mountain. You go up to Mount Sinai, you do the contract thing, work that out, you know. And so Moses is up doing all that, gets this covenant. And, of course, if, if you're familiar with Exodus, the Ten Commandments show up in Exodus 20. So this is kind of the beginning of some of the guidelines, right, of the covenant. God, God gives them some guidelines starting with ten, and you know some of them, you know, do not murder, honor your father and mother, obey the Sabbath. Those are the you know, part of the ten. Starts with, hey, no other God before me. That's kind of a crucial one. So it starts with the ten, then we get some other things, and then toward the end of Exodus, we get some of the blueprints for this mobile place called the tabernacle where God is going to bring his presence close to the people. And there's some specifics on how that's going to work. So we get the blueprints of this temple tabernacle thing. It's going to be this mobile place where God's going to meet with his people. And then that all ends with some marching orders at the end of Exodus that's going to help them to be prepared for what comes next, which is marching in a very sort of military fashion toward the promised land. Now, some things happen there. We'll get to that in, in the next couple of weeks. So that's how you kind of split it in two. The first part is the excitement of getting out of Egypt, running from the Pharaoh, all those good things. And then you get to Sinai and everything stops. And we get this very special covenant arrangement that God makes with his people. Easy, right? Seems good. So God rescues. Then he makes his covenant with the people. We're all good. Things, things are good, right? Well, if you've been paying attention... While Moses is up there doing his thing, the people get restless, and they get rebellious. And they corner Moses' brother Aaron, and they say, you know what? We need uh, something tangible. Would you make us a golden bovine? And we're going to bow down to it. Now, I don't know what the deal with Aaron was. Like, why did he, like, was he afraid? Peer pressure? I don't know what it was. He's like, fine, you know, give me some stuff. We'll make this thing. And then here's your God. I think he even says, here's your God that got you out of, out of, out of Egypt. It kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? Because it wasn't that long ago. We're talking months. They, they haven't even really been on this road trip very long. Months. They, they saw God do all these crazy, amazing things. And within a short amount of time, make us a calf. We're going to bow down to it. And they start partying and having a good time. This is around Exodus chapter 32. So there's a rebellion. Now God deals with this rebellion. Moses comes running down the mountain. You get this thing, no, stop this crazy thing. God does some, some judgment there of the rebellion. And, and so it, it, it wasn't all rosy. The people quickly rebelled. And this is a pattern that you're going to see over and over and over, and in your life, and in my life, come on. They weren't any worse than we are. They weren't primitive. They're just like us. God has goodness. He wants to bless. And we tend to want to make up our own 
goodness. We want to we call the shots. We want to determine what's good and evil. And there's that conflict. And so this is going to happen, folks, over and over and over again. And some of you know exactly what that is because you've done that in your life. I know I have. God is going to want to bless us, but too often we choose to walk the other way. And that's what the people did within months of walking through an ocean. Some of you are thinking, well, if I saw that, I would never rebel. I don't know. But the people do that. So they're there for a whole year. I don't know if you knew that. Maybe you've read the Bible and you're like, I didn't realize they were there for like a year. But they're getting lots of instructions, including these these tabernacle instructions, this this mini tent thing where God's going to be having his presence with the people. Lot of instructions, very, very detailed instructions. Some of you are more engineer-minded people. It gets really specific in there. But they're there for a year. And here's, here's where I nerd out a little bit. I, at one point, I fancied myself as a comic book collector. I had some pretty, pretty rare comic books, including a really old Superman comic book. Uh, and I know how, how, how you know, value works, that sort of thing. Moses, check this out. Moses had original hand-signed copies of God's law. Signed copies. Can you imagine what those be worth today in the marketplace? Sotheby's auctions, come on. And then what does he do with them? He comes running down the mountain. The people are like bowing to this bovine. He's like, what? He's pulling his hair. You can see him pulling his hair out. And he drops, breaks them. Hand signed by God. Totally worth so much money. Anyway, I digress. But there's also something that I find really interesting. The first spiritual gift is actually mentioned in Exodus. Now, if you're a super, super Bible nerd, you might know what it is. It is in conjunction with the building of the, the tabernacle. Remember that mobile place where God, his presence comes close to his people. The first spiritual gift is listed in Exodus 31. And anybody know what it is? Take a stab at it. Artists, craftsmen, people who create. Now, as a musician, I find that heartwarming. That there's a spiritual gift right there before the other spiritual gifts. You can talk about all your spiritual gifts if you want, but music, art, creating. And it was, it was around this, these, these people that were, were making incredible, beautiful things for the tabernacle. Exodus 31, first spiritual gift showed up. And here's something else that's pretty cool. Now remember, the people were kind of afraid of God a little bit because God shows up and it's like lightning and thunder and they, they freak out. They tell Moses, you, you handle the God part. You know, so much so that when, when, when Moses would go meet with God, his, he, he would be in God's presence and he would come down the mountain and he'd be like glowy. You think like radioactive material or something. I don't know. But he's glowy and the people are like, we don't want that. But God does something, especially toward the end of Exodus. He said, look, so you know I'm, I'm leading you. I'm, I'm with you. I'm your God. There is no other gods, right? Don't, don't take any other gods. I'm your God. And he represent, God represented himself with cloud by day and a fire at night. So that people would remember, okay, God's still in charge of this thing. You know, we can look up and we can see God's presence and God would be there with us. Now, you might be wondering, okay, Ben, this is all great gee whiz information. How, how, how do I use this in my life right now? Like, well, how, does, how does that play into my modern life, crazy life right now? Well, there, I think there's three things and I think these are pretty important and I don't think we talk about them enough. The first one is this. God can be quite specific in how we approach him. 
Now, he's God. It's his prerogative. He sets the terms of the deal. And he can be very specific. What's interesting is when you, when you read the law like that, God is being very specific, right? Very, you get to Leviticus, if you, anybody's ever tried to really read Leviticus, super, super detailed. But God is in charge. He's Yahweh. He's the Lord. He will make the deal. He's coming to us with the terms of the deal, and he can be very specific. In the, this, this time frame, we're talking you know, 14, 1500 BCE or before Christ. So you have, you know, several, several centuries before we have the first century. And the way that ancient gods worked, it was nothing like God is putting out in Scripture. Those ancient gods, they were, they were finicky. You could sacrifice to them, but there are no guarantees they were going to do anything for you. And this, this is true all the way even to like Greek and Roman culture. I mean, these gods, Zeus and Apollos, they would do whatever they wanted to. If you, you, you sacrifice to them, they may turn their face toward you. But God isn't like that. Yahweh God, the one God, isn't like that. He makes it very clear how the people are approaching him. And the point is he wanted to bless them. And he was going to fulfill, even if the, pap- the people were unfaithful. That's Yahweh God. That's not some petty God. He treats things very different. So God can be very specific. And here's another thing. God expects obedience. I realize, again, that's not very popular right now. Sometimes we feel like, well, we're the exception to the rule. No, God expects obedience. In fact, Jesus even said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Obedience still matters. And not not that that necessarily earns our salvation. I mean, Jesus took care of that on the cross. But, see, the gospel story is God coming down into our mess. And we love to say it like that, right? He comes into our mess. He loves us as we are. But he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to stay there. He saves us in our mess. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, but he doesn't want us to stay in the muck. He wants us to move forward, to follow. That's why Jesus said, follow me. Don't just sit there. Follow me, right? So there's obedience still matters. If you love me, you'll obey what I say. So we see it in the, these first five books and certainly Exodus, but also that's the way God works. We want his blessing. We want to, we want to live life the way he's designed. Remember, law isn't about a law code, right? The way they saw it was it's guidance for your life. Things generally, read Proverbs, okay? If you don't believe me, things generally work better when you're, when you're, when you're obeying. It just, it just does, right? So life is meant to that. God understands how we're, we're built and obedience matters. And here's another thing. Remember we were talking about that golden calf a few moments ago? So that was kind of a bad moment, okay? Can we all agree? That was not, that was not really cool. People should not be, months, they just, anyway, we, we covered that. Great miracles God just did, and they're worshiping a calf. But even in the midst of that, God's mercy shines through. He didn't wipe everybody out. He still was, he, he judged people. There was, there was some wrath there, but he, he, didn't, he didn't just blow everybody away. His mercy still showed through. In fact, in the midst of all that, after the aftermath, in Exodus, if you have a Bible handy, Exodus 34, find that passage, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, verse 6 and 7. In the midst of that, remember, this is a bad moment for Israel, really goofball moment. God shows his five-fold nature, and he speaks it to Moses, and it, and it sort of gets right to Moses' heart. We see the five-fold nature of God. I, I would call it the God high five, 
Okay? Easy to remember the God high five. Here we go. Let me read it down. Starting with verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bows his head toward the earth and worships. Got Moses right to the heart. God is going to punish the guilty. There, There is punishment. In this passage, you saw some of it. But even in the midst of that, God's mercy reigns through. Did you, did you count them? There's five here. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. That's a good thing. I'm glad he's slow to anger because I know me. He's slow to anger. That's good. He's patient. Uh, he, he, he is, he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he forgives sin. Even in the midst, remember, what just happened was a bad moment in Israel's history. But God shows up with mercy, abounding in love, slow to anger. And this is a theme that's going to be picked up over and over again. It's going to show up in the prophets. It's even going to show up in the New Testament. And it's going to culminate and climax in the cross. You see, every one of these books leads right to Jesus. In even in Exodus, we see God's mercy, His grace, His patience with us. He's steadfast and faithful even when we're not, and He forgives sin. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. So, you might be asking this now. Where does Jesus show up in Exodus? Now, if you're familiar with Exodus, you might have a couple ideas. And I'm just going to share a couple of them with you that I I think are pretty cool. Uh, Jesus does show up in Exodus. First of all, Moses, what does he do? He, he, he's kind of the leader that God chooses to basically get the people out of what in Egypt? They were enslaved, right? They, they were doing slave labor. He gets them out of Egypt. So Moses is kind of a little bit of a deliverer. I mean, obviously it was God who did it, but Moses was a big part of that. And, and so he delivered the people out. Now, in a greater sense, I think Moses kind of foreshadows what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to deliver people and set people free from the tyranny of sin and death. Not just for one tribe or one people, for all nations. So here we get Moses kind of this this, this little foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do to deliver the entire world from sin. So I think that's one area. Here's another one. There was this substance that God provided the people called manna. And, you know, they were out kind of away from cities or whatever. They're, 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 there's actually, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, but they're going to wander to three different wilderness areas. And, they're, and they're, they're, they're in need of food. And God provides them this manna. Now, I don't know how many of you know about the manna thing. You probably heard of it at some point. But, but uh, it was like it would, it would come from heaven, and it would fall on kind of like dew on, on the ground, and the people could gather it, and they could do different things with it. They eat it. It's like coriander. It's described in several different ways in, in the scriptures. But that was something that God did from heaven to sustain life. Bread from heaven that would sustain life. Now Jesus, you see where I'm going with this, Jesus told people, I am the bread of life. So even there, you see that beautiful connection between life-sustaining bread. In fact, Jesus said, the bread I'm going to give you 
It's, gonna, it's not going to just fill your stomach for a couple hours. It's, it's everlasting life. So you have this beautiful picture of the, 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 the manna from heaven, the bread of heaven, and Jesus coming as, as, as the sustaining bread of life. Okay, one more. The last plague. Does everybody remember what the last plague? It was a doozy. The last plague in Exodus, beginning of Exodus, I mean, there were 10 of them. You know, there was some bugs, and that would be frustrating. Turning water to blood, that's kind of gross. Uh, you have, like, hail that, like, destroyed crops. You remember some of these plagues? The last one, though, was a doozer. It was the death of the firstborn. Now, that, that's heavy. In fact, when that plague was over, the Pharaoh's like, I don't want any of you people around anymore. And in fact, people were giving them money to leave. <laughs> You get out of here. Get, get out of here. I mean, it, it, the scriptures say that not a single household was, wasn't affected. But the people of God, they didn't have to mourn the death of any of theirs because they put blood of the lamb over the doorposts, and so they were spared. So we have the Passover lamb. It's something that they celebrated. They still celebrate Passover, where, where, the, where, where they were saved from, from, from the death of their firstborn. And when Jesus came on the scene, one of the first things that was said of him by John the Baptist, do you remember? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you have the connection of the Passover Lamb. So Jesus is all through the Old Testament, folks. He's all through the law, all the way through. So let's, go, let's bring this back to the question that I started with today, which was the story that shapes you, the stories that shape you. You see, for the nation of Israel, they would tell this story over and over and over again. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we're going to see this kind of, that Deuteronomy, that's book five, that'll, that'll be cut toward the end of the series. Moses, that's his swan song, and he's going to remind the people of these stories. And he said, I want you to tell them to your children, tell them to your grandkids. Keep telling the story. And what story does he want us to keep telling? God personally delivered you. He took you out of slavery. You see, that was a story that for the nation shaped them. They were forever going to be known as a people that God saved, rescued, delivered. And in fact, in Jesus' day, when, when they would have synagogues, and, and whenever someone would stand and start telling the story of Exodus, you could hear a pin drop. It would be an easy way to stop everybody, what they were doing. They wanted to hear the story again. Tell us the story. Tell us, go back to, okay, what happened? And, and there, was, there was the Pharaoh and the, the angry Pharaoh. And I would imagine kids would tell it, you know, on the playground or whatever. And they would probably play Pharaoh. You know, like we would play, I don't know, the different games on the, on the playground. But I bet someone, you know, was the Pharaoh. You know, you drew, drew the last straw and you had to be the Pharaoh. I want to be Moses, right? But the kids would tell these stories over and over again. Why? Because it's a story that shaped the nation. That they were always going to be God's special people. And do you know what? In Christ, you are God's special person. You are part of his family. You see, these are stories that shape us. So what about you? What are those stories that shape you? And for some of us in this room, we've kind of taken on the biblical story for our story. That we've said yes to Jesus. We want to be in his family. We want to have the blessing that God intended for creation. We've said yes to Jesus and his story becomes our story too. 
When we think about the cross, we take it personally because our Savior died for our sins. So some of us have taken that story and that has informed the rest of our lives. In fact, some of you have been walking with Jesus for a while and this story has shaped you as a person. You're not the person you used to be. His story has redeemed your story, no matter how dark it might have been. But maybe some of you right now have never said yes to Jesus. You've never, you're maybe on the fence. I encourage you, I implore you to say yes to Jesus. Let his story become your story. Let his, because here's the deal. I believe that no matter what has happened in the past, Jesus can redeem your story. He can help you tell a better tale. He can help you have a better narrative in your life. He can help you change your story forever. Stories shape us, don't they? Stories make a difference. These first five books, and really from cover to cover, this is the story of God's love for you. It's the story of God's love for me. And, and learning from these scriptures, folks, even the old stuff, okay, it helps us remember that we're grounded in a story that's been going on a long time. This story's been going on a long time, and we're part of that heritage. No, many of us didn't grow up Jewish or had that heritage, but this is part of our story because the backstory is the good stuff that tells of his story. He loves us more than we could possibly imagine. And once again, we get grounded in this story. So I encourage you, spend some time reading it. Read, or, read bigger chunks of scripture every once in a while. It's really good to see what God does. And the point is this, every one of us, whether for the first time or once again today, surrender your story completely to Jesus. In other words, surrender your life to Jesus. He can redeem your story. He can change your story. If you've been following Jesus for a while, maybe you need to re-up. <laughs> you need to say, yes, I need a fresh surrender. And maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. I need to surrender for the first time. That you can have him redeem your story to tell a new story. I'm so thankful that God opened a way for us to do that. And just like he saved the people in Egypt from, from, from slavery he saves us from the tyranny of sin once and for all. It's a good thing. Surrender to him. Surrender your story to him. Let's pray. Father, you're so good and you're powerful and you're mighty. You love us more than we could possibly imagine, even though often we're more sinful than we want to even really admit. Father, thank you that you redeem our stories. Many of us, you've redeemed our story. I pray for those who haven't said yes yet that you would redeem their story. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, move, convict, change us. And that, Father, we would take your good news, the fact that you're merciful and kind and loving, we would take that to the next generation, to the people around us, that we'd be able to share how you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us to be people who share that good story over and over again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.